Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. C.S. Lewis, Modern Theology and Biblical Criticism, Part 1. This paper arose out of a conversation I had with the principal one night last term. A book of Alec Vidler's happened to be lying on the table, and I expressed my reaction to the sort of theology it contained. My reaction was a hasty and ignorant one, produced with the freedom that comes after dinner. One thing led to another, and before we were done, I was saying a good deal more than I had meant about the type of thought which, so far as I could gather, is now dominant in many theological colleges. He then said, I wish you would come and say all this to my young men. He knew, of course, that I was extremely ignorant of the whole thing. But I think his idea was that you ought to know how a certain sort of theology strikes the outsider. Though I may have nothing but misunderstandings to lay before you, you ought to know that such misunderstandings exist. That sort of thing is easy to overlook inside one's own circle. The minds you daily meet have been conditioned by the same studies and prevalent opinions as your own. That may mislead you. For, of course, as priests, it is the outsiders you will have to cope with. You exist in the long run for no other purpose. The proper study of shepherds is sheep, not, save accidentally, other shepherds. And woe to you if you do not evangelize. I am not trying to teach my grandmother. I am a sheep, telling shepherds what only a sheep can tell them. And now I start my bleating. There are two sorts of outsiders, the uneducated and those who are educated in some way, but not in your way. How you are to deal with the first class if you hold views like Loisy's or Schweitzer's or Boltman's or Tillich's or even Alec Vidler's, I simply don't know. I see, and I'm told that you see, that it would hardly do to tell them what you really believe. A theology which denies the historicity of nearly everything in the Gospels, to which Christian life and affections and thought have been fastened for nearly two millennia, which either denies the miraculous altogether, or, more strangely, after swallowing the camel of the resurrection, strains at such gnats as the feeding of the multitudes, if offered to the uneducated man, can produce only one or other of two effects. It will make him a Roman Catholic or an atheist. What you offer him he will not recognize as Christianity. If he holds to what he calls Christianity, he will leave a church in which it is no longer taught and look for one where it is. If he agrees with your version, he will no longer call himself a Christian and no longer come to church. In his crude, coarse way, he would respect you much more if you did the same. An experienced clergyman told me that most liberal priests faced with this problem, have recalled from its grave the late medieval conception of two truths, a picture truth which can be preached to the people, and an esoteric truth for use among the clergy. I shouldn't think you will enjoy this conception much when you have to put it into practice. I'm sure if I had to produce picture truths to a parishioner in great anguish or under fierce temptation and produce them with that seriousness and fervor which his condition demanded, while knowing all the time that I didn't exactly, only in some Pickwickian sense, believe them myself, 
I'd find my forehead getting red and damp and my collar getting tight. But that is your headache, not mine. You have, after all, a different sort of collar. I claim to belong to the second group of outsiders. Educated, but not theologically educated. How one member of that group feels, I must now try to tell you. The undermining of the old orthodoxy has been mainly the work of divines engaged in New Testament criticism. The authority of experts in that discipline is the authority in deference to whom we are asked to give up a huge mass of beliefs shared in common by the early church, the fathers, the Middle Ages, the reformers, and even the 19th century. I want to explain what it is that makes me skeptical about this authority ignorantly skeptical, as you will all too easily see. But the skepticism is the father of the ignorance. It is hard to persevere in a close study when you can work up no prima facie confidence in your teachers. First, then, whatever these men may be as biblical critics, I distrust them as critics. They seem to me to lack literary judgment, to be imperceptive about the very quality of the texts they are reading. It sounds a strange charge to bring against men who have been steeped in those books all their lives. But that might be just the trouble. A man who has spent his youth and manhood in the minute study of New Testament texts and of other people's studies of them, whose literary experiences of those texts lacks any standard of comparison, such as can only grow from a wide and deep and genial experience of literature in general, is, I should think, very likely to miss the obvious things about them. If he tells me that something in a gospel is legend or romance, I want to know how many legends and romances he has read, how well his palate is trained in detecting them by the flavor, not how many years he has spent on that gospel. But I had better turn to examples. In what is already a very old commentary, I read that the fourth gospel is regarded by one school as a, quote, spiritual romance, a poem, not a history, to be judged by the same canons as Nathan's parable, the book of Jonah, Paradise Lost, quote, or, more exactly, Pilgrim's Progress. After a man has said that, why need one attend to anything else he says about any book in the world? Note that he regards Pilgrim's Progress, a story which professes to be a dream, and flaunts its allegorical nature by every single proper name it uses as the closest parallel. Note that the whole epic panoply of Milton goes for nothing. But even if we leave out the grosser absurdities and keep to Jonah, the insensitiveness is crass. Jonah a tale with as few even pretended historical attachments as Job, grotesque in incident, and surely not without a distinct, though of course edifying, vein of typically Jewish humor. Then turn to John. Read the dialogues, that with the Samaritan woman at the well, or that which follows the healing of the man born blind. Look at its pictures. Jesus, if I may use the word, doodling with his finger in the dust, the unforgettable Ain de Nux, 1330. I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know that not one of them is like this. 
Of this text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, though it may no doubt contain errors, pretty close up to the facts, nearly as close as Boswell, or else some unknown writer in the second century without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern, novelistic, realistic narrative. If it is untrue, it must be narrative of that kind. The reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned to read. I would recommend him to read Auerbach. Here, from Boltman's Theology of the New Testament, is another. Quote, Observe in what unassimilated fashion the prediction of the parousia, Mark 8.38, follows upon the prediction of the passion, 8.31. End quote. What can he mean? Unassimilated? Boltman believes that predictions of the parousia are older than those of the passion. He therefore wants to believe, and no doubt does believe, that when they occur in the same passage, some discrepancy or unassimilation must be perceptible between them. But surely he foists this on the text with shocking lack of perception. Peter has confessed Jesus to be the anointed one. That flash of glory is hardly over before the dark prophecy begins, that the Son of Man must suffer and die. Then this contrast is repeated. Peter, raised for a moment by his confession, makes his false step. The crushing rebuff, get thee behind me, follows. Then, across that momentary ruin which Peter, as so often becomes, the voice of the master, turning to the crowd, generalizes the moral. All his followers must take up the cross. This avoidance of suffering, this self-preservation, is not what life is really about. Then, more definitely still, the summons to martyrdom. You must stand to your tackling. If you disown Christ here and now, he will disown you later. Logically, emotionally, imaginatively, the sequence is perfect. Only a Boltman could think otherwise. Finally, from the same Boltman, quote, The personality of Jesus has no importance for the kerygma, either of Paul or of John. Indeed, the tradition of the earliest church did not even unconsciously preserve a picture of his personality. Every attempt to reconstruct one remains a play of subjective imagination. End quote. So, there is no personality of our Lord presented in the New Testament. Through what strange process has this learned German gone in order to make himself blind to what all men except him see? What evidence have we that he would recognize a personality if it were there? For it is Boltman contra mundum. If anything whatever is common to all believers, and even to many unbelievers, it is the sense that in the Gospels we have met a personality. There are characters whom we know to be historical, but of whom we do not feel that we have any personal knowledge, knowledge by acquaintance. Such are Alexander, Attila, or William of Orange. There are others who make no claim to historical reality, but whom, nonetheless, we know as we know real people. Falstaff, Uncle Toby, Mr. Pickwick, but there are only three characters who, claiming the first sort of reality, also actually have the second. 
and surely everyone knows who they are. Plato's Socrates, the Jesus of the Gospels, and Boswell's Johnson. Our acquaintance with them shows itself in a dozen ways. When we look into the apocryphal Gospels, we find ourselves constantly saying of this or that logion, No, it's a fine saying, but not his. That wasn't how he talked. Just as we do with all pseudo-Johnsoniana, we are not in the least perturbed by the contrast within each character. The union in Socrates of silly and scabrous titters about Greek pederasty, with the highest mystical fervor and the homeliest good sense. In Johnson, of profound gravity and melancholy, with that love of fun and nonsense which Boswell never understood, though Fanny Burney did. In Jesus, of peasant shrewdness, intolerable severity, and irresistible tenderness. So strong is the flavor of the personality that, even while he says things which, on any other assumption than that of divine incarnation, in the fullest sense, would be appallingly arrogant, yet we, and many unbelievers too, accept him at his own valuation when he says, I am meek and lowly of heart. Even those passages in the New Testament which superficially, and in intention, are most concerned with the divine, and least with the human nature, bring us face to face with the personality. I am not sure that they don't do this more than any others. Quote, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of graciousness and reality, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled. What is gained by trying to evade or dissipate this shattering immediacy of personal contact by talk about, quote, that significance which the early church found that it was impelled to attribute to the master. This hits us in the face. Not what they were impelled to do, but what impelled them. I begin to fear that by personality, Dr. Bultmann means what I should call impersonality. What you'd get in a DNB article, or an obituary or a Victorian Life and Letters of Yeshua Bar Yosef in three volumes with photographs. That, then, is my first bleat. These men ask me to believe they can read between the lines of the old texts. The evidence is their obvious inability to read, in any sense worth discussing, the lines themselves. They claim to see fern seed and can't see an elephant ten yards away in broad daylight. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>